Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hospitals have been bombed. Thousands of civilians killed. We already see President Putin committing what many in Congress are calling war crimes, indiscriminate bombing, bombing places where they know civilians are hiding, pregnant women and children. If his forces are stalled, what's next? We certainly see clear evidence that Russian forces are committing war crimes. And we are helping uh, with the collecting of evidence of that. The U.S. State Department has formally declared that war crimes have been committed in Ukraine. But still, the bombs keep dropping. As the world sits on its hands, have the laws of war been shown to be toothless? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, will President Putin be prosecuted for war crimes? Today, we're talking about the laws of war. So let me introduce you to one of the world's leading experts. My name is Gregory Gordon. I am a former war crimes prosecutor. I'm a professor of law at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And I formerly worked with the UN and the United States Department of Justice. And it was at the DOJ in America that Professor Gordon fought for justice in some of the worst cases of war crimes in history. So I was with what was called the Nazi hunting unit in the U.S. Department of Justice. It was kind of my mm. dream job. I got interested in this area because I was interested in prosecution of Nazi war criminals. And I was interested in Nuremberg. And mm. I was aware when I was studying law that there was this unit in the U.S. Department of Justice. And I never in my wildest dreams thought that I would be able to work for it. But essentially what we did was we would investigate people who had committed, if you want to call it Nazi war crimes, but had, had worked with the Nazis, whether they were running concentration camps or they were engaged in police actions. 
on behalf of the Nazis that involve persecution or killing of civilians. You're, you're going to, this is going to blow you away. My specialty was Ukraine. Oh, wow. And yeah, so it really comes full circle here. The people whose cases I worked on were people who had committed war crimes in Ukraine and had come to the United States and tried to hide in the United States. I would work with historians and investigators. We would identify these people, and then we would take legal actions against them in court. And our ultimate goal was to send them back where the crimes were committed and Mm. have them prosecuted there. Did you have much success with that? Uh, Actually, we had a lot of success. (laughs) The message of our work was that justice never rests, justice never forgets. Justice is always lurking around the corner and is ready to take action. We also, I think, operated under the premise that these horrible deeds, in a way, remained frozen in time. They were just as horrific in the 2000s or in the 1990s. And the victims, whether they were still alive or whether it was just their loved ones who perished, they cried out for justice. And we felt it was our imperative to do that. Just over a week ago, there was a moment where President Biden was moving through a room full of reporters, lots of people shouting questions at him about Ukraine. One reporter asked him whether President Putin was a war criminal, and he seemed to walk away, wasn't taking it very seriously, and then pauses, comes back, asks what the question was again. Before stating for the whole world to hear on camera that he thinks President Putin is a war criminal. And that little clip went around the world. It caused an uproar in Moscow. We know that since then they've called the American ambassador in for stern words. What did you make of it when you watched that clip? I felt that Joe Biden was speaking the truth going beyond the politics and getting to the reality of the situation. From a technical perspective, I thought he's absolutely right. There are so many pieces of evidence circulating right now that indicate that Vladimir Putin is a war criminal. He has an iron grip on Russia, and personally, he was responsible for the invasion, and that has been conducted in a way that has violated so many fundamental tenets of international law that we can definitely see from the images coming in, from the video, from the testimony, that war crimes are being committed, whether it's an attack on a maternity ward, shelling of a civilian area, the treatment of a nuclear power plant. All of the things that we've seen indicate to me that war crimes are being committed and that there's a chain of command that goes from the field all the way up to the top of the Russian military and then to Vladimir Putin in Moscow. When you are trying to prosecute war crimes, as you've often done in the past, what are the key things you're looking for? Why is the chain of command so important? It's really the most important thing in prosecutions because these are large operations. The trigger in the last instance usually represent either a person or an event that is at the end of the line of something that has gone up much higher and usually is coordinated, usually is well-organized. And so 
when you talk about why it's so important, I could tell you technically under the rules that we operate under when we're prosecuting cases that it's the crime scene itself is, is one part of what we look at. But then when we talk about participation in the crime scene, that's really where the most difficult part of the exercise lies. And so if we look, for example, at Article 25 of the ICC statute, that's the treaty that created the International Criminal Court. Under Article 25, there are, of course, principal perpetrators, but there are co-perpetrators. There are aiders and abettors, people who are part of a co- what's known as a common plan. Then under Article 28, we have a, a form of liability called command responsibility. So really, to be successful, you have to look at what happened in the actual area of destruction on the battlefield, and then you have to start connecting the dots and seeing how the people who were involved in it took part and organized or planned or coordinated or provided commands. And that's how you put your case together. So it's not just the person who pulls the trigger or who launches the missile. It's, it's the chain of command above them, the people who've ordered this to happen. Precisely. That's the key. And you also pointed out that some of the things we've seen, including the bombing of maternity hospitals, which have shocked the world. But, you know, for a lot of people watching this, all war is pretty horrific. At what point does war tip over into war crime? What do you need to be able to prove? Right. So there are a series of principles, regulations, rules. A lot of those are contained in what we call the Geneva Conventions. What we're looking for are serious violations of these rules. And there's something called the grave breaches regime. There are certain violations that are so bad, they shock the conscience, if you will, in in such a way that those are what we consider to be crimes that could be prosecuted. So things like willful killing, torture, medical experimentation, things that, as I say, we, we, we recognize as unconscionable. Those are related specifically to attacks on persons directly, but there are other ones that relate to the method and means of conducting warfare. So using certain types of weapons, conducting an operation in a certain way that subjects civilians to excessive harm. Those sorts of things as well will be considered war crimes. You've tried to prosecute war crimes for years, and it's not always easy. For you, watching President Biden quite deliberately, you know, he could have walked away from that question. He'd already walked past it and ignored it. He deliberately turned back, came back and really made a point of saying Putin is a war criminal. Some people thought it was not very sensible. For you, as somebody who's sort of gone through the legal process, and normally you, know, you have to have so much evidence before you can accuse somebody of, of war crimes, did you worry about what he said? You know, I mean, clearly it went down very badly in, in Russia, might have exacerbated some of the diplomatic problems between the countries. What did you think? You know, certain politicians might have been more circumspect, but I think there is a mounting sense that the evidence is so powerful and there's so much of it and there seems to be a tremendous amount of corroboration. And we can talk about that. We can talk about social media and social media evidence if if you'd like, that he felt comfortable as a politician saying that. Now, from a political perspective, was it a wise thing? Well, I'll tell you what, go back to World War II. 
And go back to Stalin and Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt making a declaration, the so-called Moscow Declaration of 1943, where they warned Adolf Hitler and, and his forces and the Axis forces that it, there was an awareness that they were committing war crimes and that they would mm. be prosecuted. And I think that was an incredibly powerful moment in World War II. Essentially, that was the beginning of the creation of an entire judicial machinery that brought hundreds, if not thousands, of Nazi war criminals to justice. And so, uh, lot, uh, in many occasions, the, the political groundwork for acknowledging that war crimes are taking place can be an important antecedent to the actual judicial mechanisms that are put in place. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd like to think that that's what this was about, and that's what's happening here. Now, from a strictly legal perspective, I am more circumspect in whether I'm willing to accuse someone of being a war criminal, but I've been asked whether I think war crimes have been committed. And I don't have, of course, the kind of evidence that I would want to have if I were going into court that you know I could prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. But from what I'm seeing, it looks very much to me like war crimes are being committed. So even from a judicial perspective, I think there's credible evidence. So for, for Biden to make that statement, I think it makes sense. Well, talk us through the evidence. Talk us through the evidence that you've seen that makes you think war crimes are being committed already. And also tell us, you know, what more you would need. You know, you sort of said it's not quite enough to walk into court yet. What more would you need to be able to do that? Yeah, so I would want to have a number of sources verified and I would want to have a number of, of different types of evidence to make my case. Obviously, testimony from people on the ground, photographs, documents, intercepts of satellite communications. But what I think is really interesting now is this new phenomenon of social media and social media mm. evidence. And I would combine the evidence of the vertical chain of command with the, I guess you could say, horizontal picture of what has happened in the battlefield. It's really interesting that you talked about the social media evidence. You know, we're all seeing the clips yeah. coming out of, of the horrors that are unfolding. Is something being done about it already? We heard from the government in Kiev that they were, you know, they called it uh, a genocide and, and war crime. Is there a process? I mean, is, is that, has that already begun where this will be investigated? Yes. The prosecutor from the International Criminal Court has announced that an investigation has been launched. That is happening right now. At least there seems to be, from the prosecutor's perspective, a reasonable basis for finding that the Russians are committing war crimes. And at the top of their chain of command is Vladimir Putin. Once we go through the evidence the way that I talked about with you, we would have a, a bunch of charges. So when when we would determine exactly you know, when that hospital was hit, for example, and we, we had the evidence all lined up and we could connect it to the chain of command, then we would put together an indictment. And then there are a series of procedures that lead you ultimately to a trial, unless a defendant pleads guilty. And this assumes that the defendant is in custody, of course, or the person who's been charged is in custody. When it goes to court, there is a formal proceeding where the prosecutor will give an opening statement, the defense will give an opening statement, and then the evidence will be presented. And then the defense will rebut that with its own evidence. And then 
it's a court that sits, there's a panel of judges that will sit and listen to the evidence. Three judges, they will need to come up with a decision that by majority, hopefully it's, it's unanimous to the extent that it's proved beyond a reasonable doubt that these crimes occurred. In my case, for example, for the Rwandan genocide, just to give you an example, we had charges of genocide, not as much war crimes. We got prepared for trial, and then the case went to trial, and ultimately uh, it was successful. So it's a long process. It takes a long time. You have to be, to a certain extent, patient. But while the arc of justice sometimes can be long, it also can be quite satisfying. And I'm hopeful that's what will happen here. And, and just how long? How long does it normally take to get through the process to be able to prosecute somebody for war crimes? Yeah, of course, it depends on the context. So in Nuremberg, for example, where the Allies control Germany and had access to all the evidence, pretty much, it went very quickly. They started the case in November of 45, and they were done by October of 46. The cases I worked on, it took, you know, more like five years. It really does depend. You have Slobodan Milosevic, who was being tried by the Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia. It took so long that he actually had a heart attack and died before it could be brought to final verdict. So I think there's a tension between making sure that you're thorough and making sure that you are going quickly enough so that justice can be done. Can you actually see Vladimir Putin being held to account in the International Criminal Court? That really depends on what happens in the war and certainly what happens in Russia. But I'll say this, if this war continues to drag on and not go as well as he hopes it will go, and I just read, for example, today that there's an estimate that 10% of Russian forces have now been taken out by a spirited Ukrainian resistance, if those fortunes of war continue to go badly for him. He might get pressure at home with all the sanctions that the international community is applying against him, and he could lose power, in which case I can't see him being brought to justice. Coming up, how were the rules of war agreed upon in the first place? That's after a quick message from a colleague. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and every day on my show on Times Radio, we speak to some of the biggest names in the world of the arts, culture, and politics. We bring you discussions about new social trends and all the latest news, views, and interviews. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Take us back a step and just remind us how the Geneva Convention came about. Because I think for a lot of people, you know, the idea of having rules of war is such an interesting one. War is so chaotic that, you know, the idea that it is still governed by laws is really interesting. And, you know, who sets them and how everybody signs up to them is really interesting. So just remind us how the Geneva Convention came about. There's a long history here. I and mean, we can go all the way back to rules of chivalry, right? But really, it starts to become the modern phenomenon that we recognize in the 19th century. In 1859, Henri Dunant, a Swiss businessman, was traveling through what is today Italy, and he came upon what was known as the Battle of Solferino, where the Austrians and French were fighting related to Italian independence and, and the Austrian control. It was a horrific battle. There were injured and dead littered all over the, the field. Dunant was coming through on a business trip, and he saw this devastation and thought, my God, no one's doing anything. He stopped what he was doing. He gathered everybody together he could in the area and helped people on the field who were suffering. He had administered to them along with all the other people in the area. Mm. And that changed his life. And he went back to Geneva where he was from. And he formed a committee that ultimately became the International Committee for the Red Cross. In 1864, they got a number of nations together they adopted the first Geneva Convention. What was the first Geneva Convention? Yeah, so the first Geneva Convention set out the very basic ground rules, things like ambulances and military hospitals and the personnel serving with them uh, are to be recognized as neutral and protected during conflict. Uh, citizens who assist the wounded should be protected. Wounded or sick are to be collected and cared for by either side in the conflict. Very basic. And then also the symbol of a red cross on a white background, right? This is the famous, powerful symbol that we all know today. This is the beginning of the Red Cross movement. I should mention to you, because to try to summarize all of this is daunting, but I can tell you that there are, if you will, four cardinal principles that matter in the law of war. One is distinction which is that we have to distinguish between civilians and combatants. The other thing is that related to that, we have to be treating people who are known as hors de combat or outside of combat with dignity and respect. Two, necessity. An army or, or an armed force should try to conquer the enemy as swiftly and efficiently as possible. Three, humanity, we should make sure that we do not cause unnecessary suffering. 
for proportionality. While we may sometimes have what we call collateral damage, where civilians will not, not on purpose, because that violates the law of distinction, but will we have targeting operations, right? Those might sometimes involve civilian casualties, and those cannot be excessive in proportion to the utility of the military operation. And that's proportionality. We take all of those as well as what are known as precautions, and precautions allow us to make sure, for example, that we warn civilians that they need to get out of an area before it's bombed. And if you will, the embodiment of those principles is found throughout the Geneva Conventions. So the original convention was adopted in 1864. You also have in the background what are known as the Hague Conventions. In 1904, you had the Russo-Japanese War. So ironically, mm. the Russians convened international conferences because they were worried about the brutalities of modern warfare. And they came up with a series of rules and regulations related to methods and means, the way that an area is bombed or the types of weapons that are used, those sorts of things. So the rules seem to change and are shaped by every conflict they seem to encounter. You know, the Russo-Japanese War you mentioned and then the World Wars. You know, more recently, we've seen technology changing the way we wage war. How have the conventions coped with that? I mean, what, what do they say about things like, for example, cluster bombs or, or white phosphorus? Are those yeah. technological inventions, are they, are they allowed? Are they allowed in certain circumstances? How does that break down? So that's another layer of the law of war. I'm glad you brought that up. Some of it is already in the Geneva Conventions, but we have separate conventions. So for example, there's a convention on conventional weapons and things like booby traps and lasers are, are covered in that. And there's been some discussion about whether we should have a protocol to that related to autonomous weapons, because there's a lot of discussion now about autonomous weapons. Let me come back to that in a moment. Um, in the meantime, mm. we've had a convention on landmines in 1997, which has been very successful. And we've also had one on cluster munitions in 2008. So sometimes what we do is we, we will enter into a new convention related to a certain type of weapon. And I think autonomous weapons, sometimes known as killer robots, yes. that's kind of the new frontier, right? And think about it. Remember I talked about the cardinal principle of distinction. One of the things that we worry about with these sorts of called killer robots or autonomous weapons is that they will not be able to adequately engage in the distinction necessary to make sure that civilians are protected. And so I think there's a lot of very compelling reasons now to enter into a new convention and take into account this new phenomenon. And when, when you're doing that, when you're changing the rules, you know, when new things like killer robots come along and you suddenly need a whole new set of laws to govern them, how do you get all countries to sign up to them? Because, you know, there will be countries who already have killer robots who want to use them in the way that they, they, they like. Yeah. Sometimes you can't get every country to sign on to these treaties. Let's say there are 193 countries in the world and you only get 120 to sign on. What happens is something called customary international law develops. So treaties often serve as the foundation for the formation of customary international law. And customary international law, I'll, I'll try not to be too technical. You warned me at the beginning of this conversation uh, not to be too technical, but I'll tell you something. You are governed by this every day and you probably don't even realize it. 
If you go to the restroom, really? I know you'll laugh. You'll laugh at this. But if you go to the restroom, you will probably, I suspect, go to the ladies' room. Yes. And then I'll ask you, there's no law that tells you you have to do that, right? But you think it's something that's obligatory. Yes. That's an example of customary law. And we have similar, uh, I, I know I'm, I'm making a little bit light of it, but it's true that on an everyday basis, you wait in line to, to go to the, into the movies. When there's a popular movie, you don't cut in front of other people in line because you think that that's a rule, even though it's not published in any kind of ordinance. That's how yeah. customary law works, right? And we have a lot of that related to the law of war, a huge part of it. And, and these laws and the customary laws that have sort of developed over centuries now, really, have there been sort of big cases that have proved to leaders around the world that if they do break them, they will be held to account? Yeah, I mean, Nuremberg is really the, the bedrock in that regard. So yeah. we had all, remember I was talking about the, the Hague Conventions and the Geneva Conventions, where, if you will, the rubber met the road was at Nuremberg, where all of these customs uh, or rules that were expressed in the conventions, the, the major violations of them were prosecuted and people learned, hey, these rules have teeth. It wasn't just Nuremberg. I mean, there, there were a lot of domestic trials. The World War II prosecutions were legion. You know, they were done by military tribunals. They were done in domestic courts. We talk about Nuremberg so much, but there were a lot of prosecutions and that helped lend credence to the idea that these norms had crystallized into true customary international law. For the people of Ukraine, they've endured a hell of a lot over the last century. There are people we've watched being evacuated from places like Kharkiv who were evacuated last time when it was the Nazis coming for them. I mean, I suppose for a lot of people that will just sort of raise the question that, you know, we've had these laws that are supposed to govern war for such a long time, and yet they continue to be flouted, really. I mean, why are war crimes still happening? Why are they still ignored? You know, I could ask you a, a similar question. We've had laws against murder for yeah. most of human history, and yet they're still flouted. They're still ignored. Does that mean we shouldn't have laws that outlaw murder? Absolutely not. We are never going to have a perfect system where a rule is going to be abided by 100%. That's just not the way human nature works. However, if we have the rules in place, and if we follow up, and we actually engage in the justice process, then we will send out a message that hopefully will deter others from committing those crimes in the future. And I think that's the message that's being sent to Russia right now from the rest of the world, and it's thanks to these laws. Does it matter that Russia doesn't recognize the authority of the International Criminal Court? Does it make it harder to, to prosecute Vladimir Putin at some point? Well, I think there's a, a common sense answer and a technical answer to that. The technical <laughs> answer... <laughs> I'm so the glad they're different. <laughs> they are. I mean, there's so many things in the law. The technical answer is that it doesn't because what's going on and the reason that the ICC prosecutor is able to go forward is that Ukraine, which by the way, is not also a member of the court, has given the court, if you will, ad hoc jurisdiction through Article 12 of its statute. So that allows countries to go to the court and say, look, we want to refer this case and we will subject ourselves to the court's jurisdiction. That is, it's a real investigation. 
And so in that sense, certainly Putin can thumb his nose at, at the court. And that's the, my technical answer is that he's still subject to the court's jurisdiction. But in, uh, my common sense answer is, as long as he is shielded by his military, as mm. long as he is protected by the many layers of security and power that he holds, I don't think he'll be subject to the court's jurisdiction unless there's a change in circumstances in Russia. Wow. So as long as he's in power, he can't be held accountable, really? Well, unfortunately, the International Criminal Court doesn't have a a police force. It's not like you can go in there and break down his door and say, Vladimir Putin, you're under arrest. That doesn't exist. The other thing you have to keep in mind is that Russia is on the Security Council. The Security Council is responsible for the maintenance of peace, and therefore essentially has control over whether armed forces authorized legally. Mm. Russia is one of the so-called permanent five of the Security Council. So it's Russia, the US, the UK, France, and China. And Russia can exercise its veto power. Why does that matter? Well, because there could perhaps be a response by the Security Council to authorize what's known as collective self-defense under Article 51 of the UN Charter. But Russia can and has, will veto that. So now a lot of people are talking about creating a new ad hoc tribunal, kind of like Nuremberg. And that's another possible way that Putin could be brought to justice, because you were asking me about that. Uh, and, And how exactly would that work? So you would have a number of nations that would probably sign a treaty that would create a court. You told me, again, not to be too technical on you, but probably the basis for it. Well, there are a couple of different potential bases for jurisdiction, but one could be what's known as universal jurisdiction because aggression is known as a use cogens crime, which means that it creates obligations. So what that means is genocide, Mm. crimes against humanity, war crimes. Aggression is among those, slavery, torture. The obligation is to prosecute or extradite when those crimes are committed. And that means that any country can prosecute those crimes. So I think the idea is to sort of take the universal jurisdiction power that exists and vest that in an international tribunal that could sit somewhat like the the tribunal did in Nuremberg, and hear a case against the Russians for aggression. It is, you, you mentioned how hard it would be to bring Putin to justice just because he's surrounded by his guards, his military, he's in Russia. Would there be a possibility if he, was, if he left Russia, if he went to a summit anywhere in the world, that he could be arrested by local police effectively and held and, and it, it, under the war, the war crimes legislation. Sure. So that's the idea. So I was just talking about aggression. But remember, again, the International Criminal Court prosecutor is already investigating Russian crimes related to potentially genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. Right now, it's just a general investigation. If the investigation goes to the point where the prosecutor asks for the court to issue an arrest warrant, you never know when someone might get turned over just as Slobodan Milosevic was in the former Yugoslavia. But Putin, yeah, that could be through the International Criminal Court, or if this international tribunal that is now just a hypothetical at this point were to indict him 
the countries that are signed up to that tribunal, they would be looking to arrest him. I mean, regardless of all these justice efforts, the sanctions, which are increasingly getting harsher on Russia, and the way that Russians are being perceived, and Russians themselves are now starting to get restive. I think they're starting to realize internally that this war is wrong, a really bad idea. And of course, they're being suppressed in many ways. But how long will that continue to last? And if there is regime change, then you know we're wide open to the idea of Vladimir Putin in the dock in a criminal trial. If there isn't, is there a danger that, in a way, it almost makes it harder for Vladimir Putin to end this war if he thinks there is a danger of you know, prosecution at the end of it? Yeah, that's one of the really important questions that people ask. So some people say, well, if we can get peace, then maybe we're willing to sacrifice justice. I don't agree with that. I, I, I agree with the people who say no peace without justice. In the long run, if you don't deal with the justice part of it, you will embolden further a, a person like Putin or others like him. So you have to be very, very careful, I think, if you want to make compromises to ensure what you believe will be peace in the short term, when in the long term, you're probably jeopardizing international peace, security, and justice. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Professor of Law at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, Gregory Gordon. The producers today were James Shield and Taryn Siegel. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you enjoyed this episode, if you found it useful, please do leave a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.